0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Dead Who Sell Life. Kim Philby. Feng Shui Junctures.
1: And a better Roman Britain.
0: next sponsor this week is
1: atlas games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game once upon a time as you might have been able to guess from that pressy in once upon a time players tell a story together using cards
0: each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them
1: like a dragon a stepmother a journey a palace
0: each player also
1: has one ending card like and so his wound was healed but his heart remained forever broken
0: to play once upon a time one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards
1: for example, once upon a time a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story.
0: When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off.
1: Weaving in their own element cards.
0: The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending cards so the story makes
1: sense. Great for role players. Great for kids, who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills.
0: Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium.
1: James Magazine called it the best family card game of the year.
0: Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame.
1: The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way! But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left!
0: For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still-great second edition at a
1: liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check! It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check! There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check! And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin.
0: Indeed they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin.
1: The clatter of dice, the crinkle of Doritos bags, the thump of pizza being laid down, the complete distraction from the game. Tell us we have entered the gaming hut. And (laughs) Robin, tell us what hijinks will we get up to today in the gaming hut?
0: Well, our typical hijinks, uh, not only in the gaming hut, but many of the other segments, are to riff a whole bunch of ideas around a sort of a central theme, and often we'll present you with the listener with, like, 12, 13 different possible ways to take something in the news or a mythic figure or whatever it might happen to be and then help you uh, with all sorts of little one-liner ideas. And this time I thought we would demonstrate the act of taking a single idea and developing it more and adding flesh to it. And the one that I thought that we would use as a basis for that is a few episodes back we talked about the sunken remains of uh, Dunwich uh, off the coast of England, and we riffed a whole bunch of different story ideas from that. And one of them was that there might be a settlement of the dead under the ocean, and that they somehow come into contact with our world, and they establish a trade relationship because they are able to sell life and death. Somehow they have the means to sell you additional lifespan for yourself or a loved one or even a pet. And then we're giving them something else in return. And that's basically what we came up with the, that idea. And then we went on to riff a bunch of other ones. And I thought we could then look at this single idea and put more flesh on it so that it's something that could be the core of a campaign or a series of linked adventures or something that typifies or is central to a particular setting. And this is a, we've already established a lot about it, it's a modern day setting with a magical resurgence and there is a big economic element that the trade relationship and the magic realism of being able to sell life and death are both related to one another. So, Ken, how would you go about, uh, as first steps, creating this sort of set of logical extrapolations that make this... Seem to make more sense and also make it more interesting and playable.
1: Well, I think that first of all, when you start saying things like logical and make more sense, you're you're maybe getting off on the wrong foot because, as you mentioned earlier, when you said when you indicated the magical realistic quality of this, things don't need to make logical sense as much as they need to make you know what you might call poetic sense or they might need to make mythic sense. So, if you have uh, traffic with the dead for years of life or for other secrets of the dead, but the years of life is, is sort of the standard thing. And that might be one thing that you want to do is start making lists of other things the dead could sell you, uh, knowledge of of what your uncle was really like or, or, you know, the location of a lost will. The dead traditionally know where lost treasure is, so that's another possibility. The right to interview given members of the dead might be another thing. And it, depending on how central you want those aspects to be in the game, you can bring them forward or not, or you can make them single episodes or single things that you examine in the course of this uh, storyline, but you also need to have notions of what other sorts of poetic or symbolic effects are you going to put into the world to both signal the players that, no, this is not the actual world in which you're going to actually have an exchange rate, and everyone has to figure out how many dead people ducats to the um, ruble, you can, you know, none of that. What you want to say is, how is this affecting, you know, society? Is it nothing but classic rock on the radio? Only music by dead musicians is being played? Are the, um, uh, films all black and white again for some reason? Is there other effects that have happened with this sort of, you know, increased thanatopic viewpoint of society, the fanatic focus of society? Is, is that changing? the waking world, the, the surface world as well. And the ways in which you decide that it's changing it should not only be the sort of. You know who controls access to Dunwich? Is it the European Union? Is it the United Kingdom? Is it NATO? Is it the United States? Because we just parked the USS Nimitz off the shore and dared anyone to say different. You know who has access to it? Who controls it? Can anyone talk to the dead? On like we, I think in the in the original segment we talked about giving the dead iPads so that they could uh, waterproof iPads so that they could look at uh, the internet and be part of the world of the living again. So are there like is there dead it some, you know, a channel where the dead people all talk on the Internet and people go and they ask them anything there in exchange for bitcoins or, or whatever? So
0: that's a ton of questions. And yeah. although I agree with you that what you're looking for is a, a mythic logic, not necessarily a literal or extrapolative logic, that even a very mythic storyline has to have a set of rules Uh, and some of these rules can remain unknown, especially at the outset of play, but Mm -hmm. let's say that we're making a set of decisions about this and that there are certain things that we're establishing that the players from the outset can know are true. So let's start by making some decisions about the trade relationship between the living and the dead. And although you certainly probably don't want to, unless... I suppose you could run an economics game, you know, using that same sort of traveler emphasis on on trade and commerce. But we want to know in at least a broad sense uh, how this works and and why it works and what the boundaries are for what can and can't happen. At least those boundaries that have been established from the outset. So if there is a trade between two entities, that suggests that the commodity that they are offering is somehow scarce Now, that might be an artificial scarcity or an actual Mm -hmm. scarcity. So, Ken, why do you think the ability to sell us additional years of life, why is that uh, limited? What do we want to establish as the reason for
1: that? I think that we should begin by establishing that it's limited in the setting, that people... Understand that there's only so many, you know, flowers of immortality that grow in, you know, the undersea world of Dil Moon or wherever it is that the dead people go and get Asphodel, whatever it is that they're bringing up. And I think the notion of selling it as flowers is nice because it can be like one petal of the flower for each extra year. And so you can have sort of a nice symbolic, uh, notion there. And it has a thing where you put flowers on the grave of the dead and that that may be a poetic echo. And then maybe as you go forward, there can be questions about You know, that's odd. In Homer, it says there's whole fields of Asphodel. There's lots and lots of these things. And maybe the dead are like acting like De Beers. You know, they've got these giant vaults full of life, and they're just doling it out in order to get us all into their debt for some larger unknown purpose that that Pluto or or whoever the king of the dead has, Nodens, whoever the king of the dead has. And so I I think you want to start out by establishing that it's scarce, that it costs a lot to get years of life. I, and I think you also begin with the notion that there's one kind of thing that people get that the dead can't cure. Like maybe if you're beheaded or you, you, you know, you die in a, in a, in a big violent accident as opposed to by disease or by just your wasting away.
0: Right. They're just extending your natural yeah. lifespan. Yeah. They,
1: they can't, they can't bring that back. And so that gives you your character whose wife was in a, an automobile accident or whatever it was and her head got, you know, chopped off by the, by the force of the, of the, of the crash. And, that's and he can't ever get her back, and he resents this economy of the dead and all the other people who get their uncle Steve back from cancer or their or their mom back from her or just um you know dementia or whatever it is
0: well why don't we um what so we have two possible ways to to go on this then uh one is to decide that they can bring you back from the dead mm-hmm. and uh I would like to propose the other one, which is just that they can extend your natural lifespan while you are still alive
1: yeah but i think that there should be a rumor that they can bring you back from the dead like that there's an underground trade underwater in actually resurrecting people and that that's what sort of there's this rumor mill and people say that it happens and there's people who walk around who look like they might have been dead but they don't talk about it and it's a big hush hush secret thing it's like you're it's um uh you know, deeper underground than than drug smuggling it's more like atom bomb smuggling uh, in that in that sense
0: right, and so what you're establishing here is a layer of different levels of knowledge where there is mm-hmm. there are certain facts that everybody agrees to be true in this case that you can extend your natural lifespan by buying this rare product slash service from the dead underwater mm-hmm. and then there are other layers of rumor and disinformation surrounding that. So we've got the layer of rumor that possibly these flowers that allow this are not in fact rare, but there's just a cartel in effect. And you've also got a rumor that maybe there are even rarer, uh, more expensive flowers that the dead haven't revealed yet that can bring people back from the grave or can protect them even from uh, violent death. And so all of these different ideas can then inspire plot lines in our world. And you want to, as you take these ideas and build them into a series of adventures in a campaign, you want to start out with the very simplest one first and establish the status quo early on and then start to nibble away at the edges and introduce uh, doubts and rumors and mysteries on top of that. But to back up to what that original first set of ideas might be, let's ask ourselves, uh, we know why people want to extend their lives. That's pretty obvious. And we know that that would be incredibly uh, valuable in terms of uh, people's uh, wealth. It would be, you know, more healthy life is the uh, most thing you could possibly uh, want. But what is it that the dead want in return? What did the dead uh, not have that they want from us? What is the other side of this trade?
1: Yeah. And, um, and that I think has got to be something other than, you know, iPads or, or diamonds or something. I mean, maybe it could be uh you can, well, it can't be diamonds because like I said, you know, De Beers has got a big vault full of them and, you know, and they, and they could be, you know, five for a nickel if you actually had all the diamonds out running around. But I, I, I think it should be some, sim some, some symbolic object I don't think it should be, you know, as crude as oh you sell someone else's life and it's just this, you know, giant circular trade because that's boring. In Homer what the dead want is blood and they want the smells of the living. They want to be able to to smell cooking uh meat or spices or or fresh flowers things like that. But I don't know that you want to be trafficking in perfume per se unless there is a special formulary of perfume that is guaranteed to that the dead will like. And now we have two cartels: we have an earthly cartel of perfume manufacturers and a undead car, and a dead cartel of life extenders. Or do you think that that makes the makes the setting too hermetic and hard to get? Yeah, at?
0: I, I want to pitch an idea that gives the player characters something to do that gives them a the core activity, and right. that is that there is a uh, another substance. Uh, that the dead provide. It might even be verdigris uh, that has been aged in a particular way. And you can take this and willingly place your memories in it. Uh, The thing is, though, you lose those memories. And the dead don't want just any old quotidian memories and they don't want traumatic memories. They want the very best memories of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so, there is now this other rare thing, because of course that's something that People don't want to give up their very best memories. And it's not necessarily the case that the same people who are getting more life back are the ones who are giving up their memories in return, but rather we have an underclass of desperate people. And if you can pay your rent for a couple of years by giving away the memory of your best meal or the first time you made love to your spouse that suddenly becomes a temptation, but it's also exploitative. So what if the player characters are the people who are managing this trade, that they are uh, the people who are going around trying to attract people into uh, giving up their memories, and then they are taking it and trying to sell these memories to the highest bidder. And uh, perhaps in the City of the Dead, you know, it can take a little taste of the Verdigree and a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of people can share the memories, not the way that, you know, the extended life, that's for one person only, but maybe, you know, an entire community, an entire neighborhood of the dead can feel the memories of that perfect day at the lake where you had the uh, steak dinner. So that brings in your mythic resonance, the idea that the dead want cooking smells, but then builds on it and creates a source of tension and conflict because, of course, there will be people in the world who object not only to the extremely wealthy being able to extend their lives when most people can't even afford their lifestyles. But you also have this increasingly exploited underclass who are having more and more of their memories voluntarily stripped away from them, but under a course of economic pressure. And so you now start to have this underclass of people where some people are completely stripped of their, uh, all of their memories, that they have sort of a patchwork Uh, recollection of their lives and that may begin to have uh, effects on them and uh, that may change their behavior so uh, how do you think that would change society if there was an underclass of people who had these sort of gossamer sort of patchwork memories of their past with all their best memories sold off
1: well i think that i'm already seeing in our setting that london which is the big the maybe norwich i don't know what the absolutely closest city with, you know, hotels and things like that is to, to the Dunwich Coast. But whatever city that is, and I think London works better just again because it's a bigger, more poetic, awesome city. Uh, but wherever our city is is surrounded by, I mean, first of all, there's you know, tourists jamming up in every hotel. There's new construction being you know thrown up as close to Dunwich Beach as you possibly can get. And then there's this sea of, of, of tent cities and people who show up. It's like lured during pilgrimage season or Mecca. There's just Crowds of people who are all desperate to just somehow get, you know, some Asphodel. And and, and now, of course, what they're doing is they're bargaining and they're like, no, no, I, I, I saw uh, Bruce Springsteen before it was big at, at uh, the Stone Pony and Asbury Parker. I did this. And they're trying to sell their memories, you know, in, in this sort of cacophony. And, of course, the thing is that they're lying. You can't necessarily taste their memory Uh, Or or maybe that's a a skill that you get, is that if you've handled these... And I think instead of it being a substance, it's like an artifact. It's like a a, a corroded, verdigreed helmet from under under the sea, and the dead will will hand it up and say, yeah, you know, have them think their memory into that helmet. And once you've handled those things enough, you can get little sniffs and traces of the memory off, and that's what makes you a better memory hunter than, you know, some other guy.
0: Right. So you as the player characters are doing the equivalent thing to every drug smuggling movie where you taste... The cocaine to make sure that it's, or the heroin to know that right. it's good, and so you're you're a memory taster, and you can, uh, and you basically know that anybody who's actually huddled around the city trying to hawk their memories, those memories probably aren't that great, or they've been stepped on. Uh, yeah, an, another memory hunter would have gone to them and found it, right? That somebody's already tracked down everybody who mm-hmm. was at the first concert of the E Street Band and has determined, you know, determined which of them is actually poor, desperate enough and still alive to sell their memories.
1: And of course, this is another stratification is George Clooney has got, not only has he got millions and millions and millions of dollars, he's got a lot of really, really great memories already. So he's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to trade my memory of the first time I drank 70 year old Napoleon Brandy for another nine years of being George Clooney. That'd be awesome. And he doesn't care because he's got the first time he drank, you know, 75-year-old brandy and he's got, you know, sex with a, a horde of, of, of starlets and eight other – millions and millions of other great memories. Yeah, And it's
0: politically progressive to sell your own memories. Yeah, uh, right. Because he's probably part of the activist organization, which uh, – but yeah. again, that's a – Uh, You know, so now we have a a hierarchical economy of experience, Mm -hmm. where if you're a super rich guy who has only worked like a dog your whole life and, you know, maybe had restaurant meals and and hookers and so forth, that your value is no longer necessarily as great as, say, the uh, guy who walked across Nepal. And that may change the whole economic structure if you can suddenly become uh, rich with uh, having these amazing one-of-a-kind memories, right? If if Buzz Aldrin decides to sell off his memories, he's yeah. suddenly as rich as Warren Buffett, and so that could cause also all sorts of economic uh, disturbances that could then shift the way uh, society works. So uh, we've got anyway a, a beginning of a superstructure, and an idea of how all of these things connect together and create an economy and create social change. So the next step from that is to begin to take these uh, ideas that we've established that all work together and try to come up with the various adventures that would flow from that. Uh, However, we're past a segment's length of uh, palaver, so perhaps uh, later on in the podcast we will come back to this yet again and Uh, provide an example of how you... Some
1: core core stories and campaigns.
0: Yes. uh, Take a story that you've extrapolated and then turn it into uh, the action that the uh, players can actually take part in. So uh, I guess we've got a series going here and uh, stay tuned, but don't change that dial because we've got yet another segment coming right up. The poison-tipped umbrella and the retinal scans you all had to endure before you listened to this segment, dear listeners, inform us that once more we have entered the top-secret installation that is the Tradecraft Hut. And we're actually recording things on a bit of a summer schedule, meaning we're recording two episodes at once today, so I thought we would pick ourselves some easy topics, and this is a topic that Ken can... uh, a reel off from memory, probably while asleep, <laughs> uh, and that is the seminal story of espionage, that of Kim Philby and the Cambridge Five. So Ken, why don't you start off by uh, telling us where this story starts?
1: As the name, the Cambridge Five, indicates, it starts at Cambridge, um, Cambridge University in Great Britain. There is, I don't know if it's necessarily called, an, it, it's like an eating club at Princeton or a society at Yale, but it's a it's a group called the apostles who are a sort of um they're devoted to the study of plato they are uh many of them devoted to having gay sex with each other and with the dons they are devoted to sneering at other people who are not as awesome as they are it's so it's basically like every other secret society in the history of great britain but (laughs) in this particular case it is also a fertile uh recruiting ground for soviet intelligence and there is a guy named um uh Oh, he's a Hungarian, actually, who moves in to the area or or sort of uh, makes contact with uh, with Philby, at least, who is at Cambridge and through that uh, connection then recruits uh, the other ones. And they are uh, Kim Philby, Donald McLean, Guy Burgess and Anthony Blunt and Kim Philby uh, is straight, uh, so, uh, that is at least something that he did to be different from the other ones. Uh, Anthony Blunt became the art historian to the Queen, and that's kind of an interesting place to be putting a spy, but I guess you, beggars can't be choosers. But, but Kim Philby was also eventually the head of US-UK joint intelligence for MI6, which turns out to be a terrible, terrible place to have a Soviet spy. The others held various positions within the British establishment um, after that. Right,
0: because need-to-know considerations kind of go out the window when you are at the funnel point between two intelligence agencies. So that's sort of Mm -hmm. the very best place to scoop off all of the best stuff.
1: Yeah, and as a a major um, uh, member of MI6 during the war, uh, Philby learns that they are looking now for Soviet spies... Within, uh, MI6, and that their big suspect is Guy Burgess because Guy Burgess was really terrible at being a spy. He was, he was a drunk. He was very loudly, aggressively homosexual in a, in a, a society that, you know, saw that as, as a huge security risk. So Burgess was about to get, uh, canned from being a spy anyway, probably just for being terrible at it. And so he warns Burgess and McLean and they, uh, flee to the Soviet Union in 1951. And since it 's obvious that someone tipped them off, Philby becomes the prime suspect that shuts down a lot of his connections with the United States, but his old school connections within British intelligence save his his career to an extent he's he 's no longer moving any higher in uh m i six because of the the accusations, but he still has access and he still is being kept on sort of the the, the string, you know, of the government. And then eventually, he is firmly identified by the defector uh, Golitsyn, and that's when he has to make the jump and leaves uh, Lebanon for the Soviet Union in 1961.
0: So what damage does Philby in particular and the Cambridge Five in general, did we actually get five names?
1: We did not. The, the identity of the fifth man is remains a, I don't want to say an open question, but it's generally assumed that uh John Karen Cross was the fifth man uh Karen Cross was also an apostle which makes that handier um and he was identified by Oleg Gordievsky who was the MI6's top man in the KGB he was a KGB I think he was a lieutenant colonel or a, or a, maybe even a colonel and he defects to the uh, British while he's in Germany, and then he gets assigned to be the KGB's man in London by the KGB, which means he's in a great position to feed British intelligence all kinds of stuff, and among the things that he fed them was Karen Cross. Now, the question being, given the way that the Soviets operate, to what extent was, you know, Gordievsky clear on how many spies there were? Did he know it was Karen Cross, or was he just guessing? You know, so lots and lots of other people have been Guessed at at being the um uh, the the fifth man, the sort of other main suspect who is no longer a suspect was Roger Hollis, who was the head of m i five and he has been identified by a couple of writers or was identified in the seventies and early eighties by a couple of writers and was very very in thoroughly investigated uh by the security service to determine whether or not he was. He's been pretty much cleared by conventional historians of intelligence although. You know, he's the sort of questions remain. Where was he type uh guy? If you're easier, your go to conspiracy hinge in that there are other uh, Victor Rothschild has been accused. He was sort of a, a backer of the apostles and uh, obviously rose up in British banking establishment. Um Guy Liddell, who's another spy. Uh, th- there's a number of people who they identify as the fifth man. But the fifth man, you know, two sort of conventional historians of, of espionage is uh John Cairncross, who it turns out almost certainly was a spy. And so, even if he wasn't the fifth man, he was a fifth man, and he was uh, turned during World War II and was passing along um, uh, Enigma decrypts to the Soviets back in the day. And then after the war, he went and worked for the Treasury and was going around, you know, doing liaisoning with the uh, with the UN and things like that. And so that sort of his would have been his role um, as as a post war spy would be to try and get British policy moved in directions that the Soviets wanted. Uh, in terms of economics, that obviously, again, less immediately dangerous than being second in command of MI6, which is where Ken Philby pretty much wound up.
0: Okay. So before we got onto the all-important question of uh, the mystery of the fifth man, which is rich Mm -hmm. in story possibilities, uh, we were uh, examining the question of what damage Philby and the rest of the group did to the Western intelligence.
1: Yeah, the main thing that they, uh, that they did was that there was a very long-running British and American program to insert agents into Eastern Europe in an attempt to create not only an anti-Soviet underground, but also to set up spy networks in those countries. And all of those agents were run through Philby's office, and they were run, I believe, by McLean and Blunt as well, but they were part of, the, of that unit. And so they wound up, you know, all of them being betrayed. So, you know, God knows how many people were basically just marched off and shot. And then the other effect of that is that the only functioning, and I use the term functioning advisedly, spy network that we have in Eastern Europe is the one that was run by the Nazis, uh, or rather by the uh, Wehrmacht, during the war, and that's the Galen Org uh named after General Reinhard Galen, who had defected to the Americans right after or right as the war is ending, and saying, I've got a lot of spies in the Soviet Union, you should pay me lots of money and I'll spy for you.
0: It was a man who knew when to defect.
1: Exactly. He was he was good at that. He was not super good at recruiting spies, but he was super good at selling poor recruits to the CIA. And so we had nothing in terms of a of an Eastern European spy organization for probably, you know, a generation, maybe two generations, until Solidarity basically gave the CIA a second bite at the apple, and we were able to move a lot of guys into Poland and then into other uh, Eastern European countries. But they basically, not only did they destroy any chance at, say, you know, a non communist Albania or non communist uh, Yugoslavia, non communist uh, possibly Hungary, um, they also, of course, wrecked any chance that uh, the West had of having an organized spy operation right after the war. It was sort of a decapitating blow. Um, like a Pearl Harbor of American spying or Anglo-American spying at the end of, at the beginning of the Cold War.
0: So the story of Philby uh, leaves not only a huge impression on uh, Western intelligence and the shape of Eastern Europe, but also on popular culture. And so, for example, it is the subtext of all of the great John Lecrae novels, including mm-hmm. uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People. And that is all a... Uh, fictional recreation of uh, that series of events and also the sort of kind of uh, grotty, real life, uh, kind of depressing detail of uh, what it was actually like to work in British intelligence as opposed to the uh, glamorous James Bond version of espionage.
1: Yeah, The the other thing that it does, in addition, obviously, is it sets up uh, Western intelligence for an endless series of mole hunts. I, I mentioned the long investigation into Roger Hollis and that happens uh, James Jesus Angleton and the CIA of course pretty much paralyzes the agency for 15 years hunting a a mole that may or may not have ever existed Um, and you wind up uh, accelerating the inevitable decay and uselessness of any spy organization when you're also tearing it apart from your end as well as when the bad guys are doing it from theirs but you know you can't really argue that there was in fact a Soviet mole in British intelligence, and they were really high up at one time, and so it makes it very hard to argue against every future mole hunt.
0: And also, just before we move on to another segment, uh, this story is also uh, central to one of your very favorite uh, works
1: of fiction, which is... Claire by Tim Powers, in which Kim Philby is presented as a central figure in the contest between Britain and Russia to control the gene of Mount Ararat. And we've mentioned the gene before. I should also mention The Untouchable by John Banville, which is a more literary novel. And it's a Roman based on the life of Anthony Blunt. And it's a terrific novel. And if you're trying to sort of read the interior life of one of these guys, a spy, a British uh, establishment figure, it's it's really great. Banville's a great novelist. And uh, I think uh, Zach S for introducing me to him through the Untouchables. So I, I would recommend that as well as obviously Le Carre and Tim Powers.
0: And well, I think uh, with some uh, bibliographic recommendations, we have uh, covered this topic at segment length and can move on to our next one.
1: Time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Stephen Hammond asks Ken and Robin, although mostly Robin, about feng shui too. I am very curious, says Stephen, about the thinking behind the changes in the junctures. Why did you decide to leave 1850 alone while advancing the ancient and future junctures? And why nuke the architects out of their future? Do these setting changes relate to any of the mechanical changes of the second edition? Oh, please help. Won't you help Stephen Hammond, Robin?
0: Uh, right. And so uh, maybe midway through this, this will turn into more of a back and forth about setting changes from editions. Uh, uh, but to address these particular questions, let's uh, start out by giving people who don't necessarily know Feng Shui a uh, background in the way that it worked in the uh, first edition, uh, which is that there was an ancient juncture that was the Wuxia Martial Arts Flying People uh, Juncture, which was set out to be 69 AD. Uh, That was chosen because that was a period when, of uh, several periods where the uh, eunuchs who uh, work backstage in the Imperial administration sort of seized power and control and in Wuxia movies, that's, and as well as mostly in Chinese history, that's a bad thing because the, uh, the eunuchs are the bad guy sorcerer types. And so that gave a setting backstory to one of the enemy factions in the feng shui continuity, which is the Eaters of the Lotus, the evil sorcerer guys. Uh, then there was the 1850 juncture, which is the juncture of somewhat more realistic, non-magical martial arts as seen in the various Wong Fei Hung movies, and that was set specifically in 1850 in order to bring you just up to the edge of the Taiping Rebellion and in this period of uh, both contention with the uh, West and contention within China itself, and that's a big dramatic uh, period that is often dramatized in Hong Kong martial arts movies. Then The original version of Feng Shui set the present day as always being at 1996. And that's because we were writing it in 94 and 95, just ahead of the handover of Hong Kong to China. And at that time, it wasn't clear how that was going to go, whether Chinese promises to keep Hong Kong essentially intact, albeit with uh, continuing fractures and tensions around uh, self-rule and democracy uh, were going to play out, or in fact, since Tiananmen Square had happened not that long before, if something much more horrible was going to happen and change Hong Kong as we knew it. And since we couldn't predict what was going to happen a year after publication, we decided to just say, well, it's always 1996. Now, 18 years later, that seems like a weird thing because Hong Kong has continued being Hong Kong, and after a little dip in the output of Hong Kong cinema after the Asian economic crash. Culturally, they're putting out the same sorts of movies and you can set the same sorts of stories there. The original game also had a future juncture, uh, which was a juncture of the architects of the flesh who were uh, the thing that was most unique to the setting that didn't come as directly from Hong Kong sources as all of the other elements. My thinking at the time was to have something in there that was specifically a feng shui element that wasn't just borrowed from other pop cultures and put in the mix master and so they were a totalitarian state of the future and the point of the architects was also to emphasize how much things can change in the timeline if a faction controls enough feng shui sites so it was an example of Uh, sort of absolute control from an absolute authority uh, state. And the idea with the architects was that their juncture was not a place that you could go hang out in and freely operate in and blow stuff up, but it was something you had to go in and do sort of pinpoint raids and then get
1: back out again. Like behind the Iron Curtain.
0: Right, very much so, except they have uh, sort of a combination of magic and technology and all these sort of weird uh, uh, Cronenberg-y things going on.
1: So, like North Korea, then. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> and, and so, for the new game, it, it except it, if the whole world is North Korea, right? That's, right, that's yeah. the level of yes. nightmarishness. Um, now, for the, the new edition, it, first of all, seems peculiar to say it's always 1996. It just makes more sense to move the timeline forward or say, you know, the present day is the present day.
1: Although, with all those um, uh, big protests in Hong Kong, who knows?
0: Well, it, yes. Uh, but, you know, I've, I'm much more confident now than I was Mm -hmm. in 1996 that, you know... 20
1: years on, it is now looking like it's either going to be a slow uh, grinding or something so traumatic for the whole region that there's no point in trying to guess about it in a game.
0: Yeah, and I I think it's just going to continue to be this uneasy mix, but it's, you know, it's still going to be the golden goose that mainland government doesn't want to kill off. And, uh, you know, and cinematically, certainly there's more integration between mainland and Hong Kong cinema aesthetics than, than there's ever been. So it's weird to leave 96 frozen in place. Also, uh, for the ancient juncture, what I wanted to do was to uh, reflect the fact that because China is so much more involved in making martial arts movies and big epics using Hong Kong talent than they ever were, and these, this new wave of Hong Kong action cinema has a much more of a historical basis than mm-hmm. the previous films did. So now they will set them at particular times and draw a lot more on real history. This has the weird effect of having, you know, well-known historical figures depicted as having
1: superpowers. <laughs> so, like George Washington. Though.
0: Well, yeah, exactly. It's it's yes. as if... uh All of American cinema treated its history as Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Right. Right. But it's still much more historically rooted. So I wanted to move it into a particular historical period. And Troy Hawk in his Detective D movies happens to have picked a really cool period, which is uh, the Tang Dynasty, uh, Mm -hmm. when there's actually an empress on the throne and not just acting behind the scenes, but there's a, a legit empress running things and it's a time of expansion and then that sort of throws the eaters of the lotus back on their heels that their home juncture back when their control is sealed up they all uh, most of them escaped through the junctures before the portals closed up and are now trying to take over but they have a much uh worthier opponent so now rather than the bad guys who are in control of everything they're sort of the evil insurgent force who is they're trying to topple this other group and uh Uh, You know, the the empress is uh, no sweetheart herself. She's a, you know, it's a real police state. So I thought that would recognize the change in uh, cinema styles and uh, create another interesting set of uh, story opportunities. For the future juncture, I wanted to do something that uh, accommodates a lot uh, more action movie territory and follow up on all the seeds that are actually uh planted for myself by my previous self <laughs> because it says that the uh, rebel group and the jammers are hoping to wipe out chi entirely in order to free mankind from this eternal cycle of uh, pursuit of feng shui sites and so uh in their juncture that has actually happened but of course that is not good as it's heavily foreshadowed in the previous material is not good. And so what results is an apocalyptic wasteland. So you get your uh, Mad Max and your Doomsday and uh, countless other sort of imitators. There are weird genetic effects, so that gives you your super-powered characters, because of course superheroes are a much bigger part of action cinema in our current CGI blockbuster era than they were in the mid-90s. And another reason for removing the architects was they uh, were probably the least popular of the factions i think for role players be- because you can't go there and hang out people did not respond to them as uh well as villains they were sort of too scary and too effective and yeah. i think people want wanted the freedom uh to sort of be uh you know roving people blowing stuff up and didn't want to have to have the uh, you know fear the power of that group um i resisted removing the architects for uh, quite a while because it seemed to me that they were very popular in the Shadowfist card game, which also uses the same setting. But uh the Shadowfist guys have also decreased the number of factions and they've dropped the architects as well.
1: So, so it looks like they were they, they were indeed nuked somehow from the uh cantosphere. Uh
0: yes. So uh it seemed like that was the the way to go and and so now you have the opposite situation in the future juncture, which is that there's absolute freedom, but it's the uh, desolate wasteland that uh, may prefigure uh, the rise of the apes. Mm -hmm. And so the next question is, why didn't I then shift 1850? And the reason for that is 1850 is still just way more interesting than 1868. Right, yeah. And so there's uh, discussion in the setting text in the rulebook about different ways to handle this, because you may be coming to Feng Shui from a variety of different places. So if you are picking up a feng shui campaign that you ran before that you can continue to follow the continuity and the fact that it's jumped back to 1850 is a weird anomaly of chi that you have to detail or that you have to deal with and that generates plot material uh, whereas if you're coming to Feng Shui for the first time, you don't bother to address the fact that 1850 was an open juncture 16 years ago. That isn't the case in your version of the setting because it's an unnecessary layer of detail. And in fact, the game goes further and presents all sorts of different ways that you can present uh, Feng Shui 2 in relationship to Feng Shui 1, right? You can do a fresh start. Uh, You can uh, There's a getting-too-old-for-this-shit campaign frame where you are Mm -hmm. playing your uh, old characters uh, 16 years later, and they're uh, making the same sorts of uh, jokes and cracks that uh, aging action movie characters uh, do. Getting together for one last heist. Right. There's, uh, you know, things have been cool for a while and calm, but now you have to get the the band back together. There's the reboot, uh, where you treat it as if this is a new series of movies based on the same material, and you play versions of the characters that you played before, but they are new young versions and you can change them a little to reflect the fact that uh, it's a rebooted version and you're retelling some of the same stories, but uh, diverging in different ways. So that there are all sorts of different ways to approach the change in the way the setting material is presented, because what I didn't want to do is just present you with a continuity and say, well, everything's changed now. Uh, Here you go it's it's all different and it's all part of the same thing but to give the players choices as to how they wanted to interact with the uh way that it's uh, shifted and conceivably you know if you want you can still get your first edition copy of the uh, architect's book and uh, play as if the architects are still in power if that uh, is what you want to do or you can keep the lotus in, in 69 it doesn't really make a a huge difference to your uh, game where these things are set, but I did want to uh, advance stuff. And there's also in the Hong Kong section. Hong Kong has changed so much and in such interesting ways that other things that I laid out in the '96 version have really developed in a in a cool way, as if I was laying pipe in history. So, for example, uh, there's a big island. Uh, that was undeveloped off the coast of Hong Kong that was established in the original game as being a living demon. Well, now it has Hong Kong Disneyland on it.
1: (laughs) Can't be any more perfect than that. Yes,
0: so think of all the story possibilities that uh, flow, flow from that.
1: This opens us up, and this may, in fact, rapidly send us out of this hut, but this is a... I don't know if it's a thing I always say, but it's a thing I always suspect, which is that Metaplot is a killer, and that if you try and come back to a game... And and provide co- base continuity. Uh, Greg Stoltz is right now re uh, re redesigning and, and refurbishing Unknown Armies for a third edition. And uh, my advice to him at the time was, don't for for uh, for God's sake, don't go back and and explain what everyone has been doing in this setting for the last 16 years, because that is boring and tiresome, and then no one wants to care. It's unnecessary which, backstory. It, it's unnecessary backstory. What you want to do is come at Unknown Armies as though you were designing it again for the first time in 2014, 2015, and present it with concerns of today, not concerns of the late Clinton administration, right? That it's it's We're in two different worlds, and certainly in terms of the gamer audience, we're a whole generation, maybe two generations forward, um, the last thing in the world anyone wants to hear is Grandpa talking about how great unknown armies was, you know, back um, uh, when we still had a uh, Twin Towers. That's that's not that that's not relevant. And and I think that when you try and do things like this and you try and extend um, the 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 meta plot, certainly, uh, f- especially for a game that that really didn't much have an onward moving meta plot. But even if you do, I mean, if you just look at the way the Traveler. Stultified its its setting uh, repeatedly, and that some people said that Vampire did. Um, you have you have a real danger when you're coming back to an, an, an old game to recreate it that you're going to wind up over privileging the past based on nothing more than its existence, as opposed to the play opportunities that either reinventing or rediscovering or just thinking of you know having been smarter in the in the last 16 years gives you the opportunity to, to, to change up and to reboot and to reinvent. Do you think that that is is a broad, generalizable case from your experience on Feng Shui, or do you think it's, uh, take it uh, one case at a time, depending on what the setting is or what the game is?
0: There is a balance to be struck, because there are people who are interested in following the continuity as a continuity, Mm -hmm. separate from how they use it in a game, and are attached to it the same way that they're attached to their favorite comics or a big TV property continuity. Um, But I think you have to be careful about serving that too much, because as we said before, eventually it just becomes a big concrete block of useless exposition that either you have to bring up in a game and then say, well, this is irrelevant now, or you just never bring it up at all. So for example, there's a question in my mind as to whether I was even going to mention the architects of the flesh by name in the new book. And I think finally that I had to because in certain spots it just became too awkward to keep saying the former totalitarian regime that the uh, jammers destroyed. <laughs> but it's, it's super deemphasized because it's no longer relevant. Yeah. And, you know, that might be something for, you know, follow up products to, you know, have a book that has the archetypes that were connected to the architects <laughs> and to, you know, because there is already the idea in the setting that there are sort of uh, refugees from the timeline who after the, uh history is changed by uh control of uh, feng shui sites that the the world totally changes, but if you've ever been through the netherworld and into another uh time period, your memories and identity remain intact, even though all the other people in your life laterally reincarnate and change into a whole different uh, society that's been remade by people blowing stuff up
1: and having you know secret architects out there makes the setting more interesting not less
0: right so you can have there's probably still a cabal of uh, refugee architects in the netherworld but that's not something that we want to emphasize right out of the jump no. because that's really only serving the chunk of people who remember the previous version of the game and they'd because the game is so simple, it's even simpler now to create um, bad guys, for example. So if you know the previous continuity and want to stat up some uh, architect bad guys, that's a simple enough thing to do, but it doesn't require or encourage every GM to sit down at the beginning of every game and spend 10 minutes talking about this faction that functionally no longer exists. So that when they do come back, it's cool, right? That when, uh, just as like in the Early seasons of the renewed Doctor Who. Each time they brought back a, a new guy. character yeah. or villain that you didn't think was going to come back, that was that was fun and interesting. But in order to do that, you have to withhold it for a little while.
1: Well, it was sometimes interesting and occasionally fun. But yeah, whatever. So when so when you're looking at uh, the the feng shui past continuity and as sort of uh, raw material for the present continuity, is there material that you brought in that you, in 1996 or whenever it was, 1994, that you wish that you had put in uh, and back in 94, you were like, gosh, I wish there was a way to get Mad Max in here. And then now you're like, haha, I have my chance. Or To what extent is it unplanted seeds from 95 that you're planting again now? And to what extent is it all like you say, the, you know, the new Dr. D movies and um uh, the new emphasis on superheroes. How much of Robin 1994 is designing Feng Shui 2015, I guess is my question.
0: Basically what happened is I sat down before I took a look at the the current state of the game and said, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, from the rules level, once I got to actually dig in, I found a lot that it needed more work than I initially thought that it mm-hmm. would need. And so it's a, a bigger... Uh, change in the way the mechanics are presented. From the setting point of view, I did start off by saying, well, what do we want now? What's fun and cool now? And this has been gestating for so long that there was even at one point uh, the suggestion that there would be an anime future juncture, but that has gone from <laughs> the, the cool new thing to not so cool anymore. Um, and so, ah, uh, that's which too is bad. <laughs> uh, well, it's not because uh, it's actually much more cinematically correct. Uh, much closer to the heart of the action movie canon to have the post-apocalyptic uh, setting. No, which, I, mean, uh, I.
1: I agree that it's that, that that's a better choice. I just think that I'm I'm sad for all the the the, the big-eyed um, uh, wushu uh, martial arts fighters using their Pokemon's and stuff who have the window of the feng shui sites pass them by like a train that th- that doesn't stop and they're standing there on the platform. No, we want. Yeah, so to! they're oh.
0: casualties of how long it took for all of the. <laughs> Uh, different uh, business possibilities to uh, to, to come together. Up. So, if they'd invented Kickstarter five years ago, that they might uh, have a juncture.
1: Maybe that can be a a lost junctures book of of things that were briefly cool between '96 and now.
0: <laughs> right. Well, you can't even sort of do that because one of the new, another, the new ideas that there are pop-up junctures, that there are portals that temporarily open to other time periods and you can go through them and you know how long you've got before the portal closes up again. And then you have to go have an adventure and get back in time. Right. And, uh, that lets people go to Shanghai in the thirties, which is another Poplar popular, popular Hong Kong movie, uh, setting. Um, or, you know, a lot of people want to fight Nazis or, uh, or whatever you know you can meet king arthur or, or so presumably you know we could open it, you could create an adventure where uh you get through the uh pop-up juncture and find yourself in crazy anime world but it's not going to be one of the right. the core elements but to get way back to the original answer to that question is i came up with what i thought i needed and then looked at the text and then setting wise found out that i'd done an amazing job of laying pipe for myself uh, without even really realizing it, so I kept finding, oh, hey, this is perfect, you know, this connects, this is all totally set up in, in 1996 as a possibility, and now I'm just doing it. Right.
1: Um, well, I think that we have uh, opened the door onto another hut, we have answered Stephen Hammond's questions uh, in detail, and we have provided people new opportunities to salivate at the possibility of getting Feng Shui too. so we must have left the Ask Ken and Robin hut behind us.
0: The whirring of chronitons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That's the vehicle, of course, that Time Incorporated uses to put Ken in and send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it in the cause of good, or at least mucking things about. And this week, there's been a a request to Time Incorporated, and uh, I'm not sure we'd be even entertain this uh, request were it not coming from our beloved IT major majordomo uh, John Clayton. I suspect this may be uh, one of broad historical forces, but we'll see. So he wants to know if Roman occupiers can, with the help of Ken, do their job better preventing long-standing regional conflicts in uh, southern-slash-northern Ireland or between England and Wales and Scotland. Now, I would think that... History tells us that if you put a whole lot of people together on an island, or even on another island adjacent to an island with a whole bunch of other people on it, uh, note, Irish listeners, that I did say that the right <laughs> way.
1: Yeah, they're still steaming you for something, though.
0: People get ready to, to jump on you even before you uh, complete your sentence. Um, and so it seems to me that, you know, when you do that, conflicts arise between people on those islands. And so uh, you wind up, the uh, the English wind up fighting the Welsh, they wind up fighting the uh, Scots, they wind up fighting the Irish, and they wind up fighting the English. But maybe uh, I am uh, being unduly pessimistic, so uh, Ken, do you have a proposal to go back in time and somewhat ameliorate the regional tensions of uh, these two islands that are near and dear to our hearts, plus additional smaller islands next to them?
1: <laughs> the um, I, uh, the question begins with uh, perhaps a unwarranted estimation, which is that the long-standing regional conflicts in southern and northern Ireland, or between England, Wales, and Scotland, have anything at all to do with the Romans. And the Romans, of course, never even conquered Ireland. They sent a couple of traders over there. We found uh, remnants of a trade mission of the Romans in Ireland, and they may have built a a fort or something to to keep themselves warm and cozy so that they could drink their wine in peace with all these howling barbarians around them. That's
0: my barbarian howl.
1: Thank you. It's lovely. Uh, But the northern-southern Ireland uh, split is, of course... Primarily a factor of having dumped a bunch of Scots there in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, not necessarily anything that the Romans did. And the Scots, hilariously, are former Irish. They invaded the northern part of the Great Britain Island uh, back in the 6th and 7th century and uh, conquered-slash-amalgamated with the domestic uh, tribes there who are conventionally known as Picts, although you can get a lot of pushback on that now from archaeologists who are mad about Robert E. Howard for some reason. And um so the division between Scotland and England, of course, goes back to that, as, as well as to the fact that the Romans gave up conquering things uh, much north of Hadrian's Wall. And then the division between England and Wales comes because the Anglo-Saxons conquered England and drove the former Britons before them, or rather did not so much drive them before them as not bother to conquer Wales. And so the Wales and England divide is accelerated by the post Roman invasion of Britain, not anything that the Romans did or did not do. So the re, the way sort of at the jump of this to break down at least the big changes between, uh, England and Wales is for the Roman British to throw back the Saxon invasion and that is a job of work, although if I were to go back and uh mess with my time machine, I might try to prevent Constantine the Third from leaving uh britain he is the one of the he is a roman general he's a he's a fighting em- emperor um and he was proclaimed emperor by his troops
0: as fighting emperors tend
1: to be as fighting emperors tend to be he invades across the channel to conquer the rest of the Roman Empire, to make them make him emperor, uh, just as Constantine the Great had done back in the day. And uh, it turns out that in this particular case, he did not uh, succeed. He was beaten by uh, Honorius's uh, General uh, Constantius III, uh, who be- himself becomes an emperor. And so that's it. that's it. He basically takes most of the Roman legions out of Britain to go set himself up as emperor, and he loses. So the way to prevent Constantine the Third from doing that, I guess, has to be to convince him that he's going to lose. And the trouble being that historically it's very, very hard to convince Roman generals who have been proclaimed emperor to say, no, no, let's just proclaim me king of where I'm standing now. That only seems to have happened once or twice in the entire history of Rome. There was a general named Sertorius who tried it in Spain during the Old Republic, and there was a general named Siagrius who tried it in Gaul. Uh, during the disintegration of the Roman empire but most roman generals once proclaimed anything wanted to, to you know gamble for the whole stick
0: well because if if you didn't go and take over the whole thing the uh you they would come after you as a as a uh, usurper a, as a, as a usurper a splitter a, a se- separationist so you couldn't get away with it right. you had to uh uh take care of your rival or he would come and stop you
1: yeah and so the um uh and and so it's a it, it may be as you as you intimated early one of those historical forces there's so little known about Constantine the third because again he didn't become emperor i don't really have a you know uh a lever to use on him um he is sort of historically in in the in the british legendary he's seen as sort of the last glow of the golden age and is considered to be a good uh king of britain uh to the medievals and whether or not he was or wasn't is you know kind of beside the point since he takes all the troops away and then right. the Saxons come over the But it seems that he's the, the
0: source of the nostalgia that is inspiring our question. Right.
1: Week. And so I think that if you, if you somehow get Constantine not to go across and whether I have to borrow a weather controlled device from farther in the future and make big storms blow up in the channel every time he tries to leave and uh, appear to him as, um, uh, I'm, I guess he was probably a Christian by then, so I can't appear to him as Jupiter, but maybe I could appear to him as St. Paul or somebody and say, you know, stay here and, and make everyone in Britain a good Christian person and build them all hot water villas, maybe that might have done it. I think
0: you're better casting for Jupiter.
1: And I think I am better casting for Jupiter than I am for St. Paul, certainly. Although, theologically, uh, you can go either way. So, so the, the, the question really hinges in, in terms of England and Wales as to whether or not I can get Constantine to stay there and keep the Roman troops. And if he does that, I think that you can build a cadre because, again, it takes about 150 years for the Saxons to conquer a basically defenseless island that's using only local militias to um, uh, throw them off. The Saxons, that al- also implies that there are huge demographic uh, impulses, and the answer may be to bring over some Angles and some Junes and make them federati on the northern borders or in uh, Cornwall or places like that to fight off the Irish, who of course are raiding across the Irish Sea uh, nigh constantly at this point, including the ones that right across into Scotland and eventually become Scots, uh, or it may be that it simply is not possible to create this kind of uh, successful marcher state. Again, it, it doesn't happen anywhere else in the Roman Empire, that the Roman administration survives and is able to make any kind of common cause with the Germanic barbarians. There are no Latin successor states after uh, 476, and so therefore I... Uh, if. If it's um uh, if it's possible to do it, I'm willing to give it the, the old college try because it'd be fun to make um uh, King Constantine, Constantine and at the very least to, you know, drown Vortigern in, uh, in the English Channel with my weather machine. But uh, I I don't know that this is going to go a super right. long and, way.
0: And if you do do that, it's not going to just result in UK and Ireland but without regional conflicts. No. It's going to be a completely different timeline, not only for Uh, them, uh, but for Europe and uh, for uh, North America as well. It's going to be a radically different time stream. What do you think that would look like?
1: Well, I mean, in our history, the Christian uh, monastic communities of Ireland basically single-handedly reseed Western civilization into France, Germany, possibly Spain, um, certainly France, Germany, and Northern Italy. I mean, there's Irish monasteries going down into Northern Italy by then. So, with a larger uh, demographic of of Christian, civilized, literate people. And again, archaeology has, has dug around in Roman Britain. And it, it, people used to think, well, obviously, Roman Britain must have been losing money. That's why it was declining. That's why they pulled the troops back. Uh, and But no, it turns out Roman Britain was super prosperous and super happy literally right up until the end, which may be why it kept attracting Anglo-Saxon invaders. So if you can keep <laughs> that kingdom, you know, ticking along for another century, you've really, you've forestalled the Dark Ages, potentially. I mean, you very possibly have a uh, an island that could be seen not so much as a beacon of civilization, but as a source of a lot of specialized trades in bureaucracy and specialized trades you know in in everything from from uh bridge building all the way down to how to make a a piece of glass work that would keep civilization operant for the franks for the for the germans you'd have a vastly faster uh, Christianization of europe um that probably the Aryan heresy would probably be stamped out early which might you know have knock on effects in terms of the of the great schism or other theological effects um there's there's a lot of possibilities that that you see and once you've You know, once you've not stopped Europe from progressing technologically or materially for 300 years, you have a lot of possibilities. I mean, the the Crusades are all are are potentially very different because once their population starts its upswing as the Dark Ages cold period ends and the and the growing season extends, then that's coming off a much higher population base. I think that you see maybe you know Germans extending you know Germany all the way out into Poland and the Poles having to build Poland in, you know, what's now Belarus. Um, it, it's hard to say exactly how, you know, that has, has an effect on, on the demographics, because again... So, so
0: you could wind up forestalling the Dark Ages, but you would still have regional conflicts oh yeah. and, in England. And
1: in England, uh, you, you you still have to deal with the fact that you're going to be conflicting with the Irish, whether they're on Irish or they're Scots, because you're not going to have any uh, the spare troops to invade and conquer Scotland. Now, if John wants Agricola to have just Pushed on and kept conquering Scotland. They they got all the way up to the uh, to the Grampians, to you know the the very edges of the Highlands in the eighty seven or ninety A D thereabouts.
0: And they said, "Why are we
1: conquering said, this anyway?" Oh, it's terribly poor and cold, and we're not just we're just we're just not into that. Um, we have we have or we, have, we already own wasteland. Yes. We don't need. There, more There won't of
0: be distilled spirits for more than a millennia. Screw this. Yes.
1: So you could potentially. Um, you know, reinforce Agricola, and that would involve going back and convincing Vespasian to send him another legion. Although Vespasian's not made of legions, he'd point out, or maybe it's commission, <laughs> whichever whichever guy it is, he's he's not got spare legions around. But if yes. Agricola, well,
0: all the all the emperors who were made of legions tended to be
1: emperors. T- tended to be emperors. That's how they worked. And, and so you you could maybe get you know the the border between England and Scotland to go all the way up to the old um, Antonine Wall, which is what the Romans tried to build it at but they weren't quite able to, to make that stick. So you'd have fewer Scots, I guess, and more, uh, they wouldn't be English. They'd be Romano-Britons. They'd be Britons. Um, but I'm I, I, again, there's just nothing up there to, to keep the Romans interested, and there's certainly nothing up there to keep the Romans spending the inordinate sum that it would take to civilize it uh, on the off chance that they'll prevent the the Irish from conquering it, which they won't because the Irish will see that, just like they saw Wales and they saw Cornwall and, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Lancashire, as prime raiding territory, and why wouldn't it be? Uh, it's just too close to the Ireland, and the demographics just aren't going to work. Um, and for the Romans then to go ahead and conquer Ireland, you're now talking about maybe going back and preventing Varus from being ambushed in Germany, so that the Romans conquer Germany, have, you know, in addition to the three legions they don't lose, uh, under Varus, they also have maybe four or five legions worth of German troops, which they can then use to, uh, finish out conquering the British Isles and maybe, you know, their, their long sought prospect of conquering Nubia or Parthia. But, you know, once you've, you know, conquered Germany and Romanized it, you've changed history so dramatically that, <laughs> <laughs> again, you know, there may or may not be um regional boundary problems, but uh they're going to be ones that we don't even see coming. And I would also, of course, point out that the fact of, you know, constant Roman administration for 400 years didn't actually change regional rivalries between North and South France. That Occitan uh had its own culture and was extirpated in the, uh, which was pretty much extirpated in the Albigensian crusade. And if you look at that as a regional war, which a lot of historians do, then, you know, it may be that there's nothing that they could do to prevent there being a fundamental disconnect at the very least between England and Scotland, if not between England and Wales.
0: Yes, regional conflicts arise out of their own dynamics and are not uh, unduly affected by how great the administration was uh, 600 years ago.
1: Yeah, um, this is true. Um, and certainly in, in the case of you know Ireland, the regional conflicts that arose a thousand years after the Romans left are perhaps not to be set down to the, to the poor Romans.
0: Well, uh, <laughs> not having solved uh, John's problem, but perhaps having solved a whole bunch of unrelated problems, I, I think we can uh, send you the signal to uh, come back uh, just in time to close out our podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as
1: always, is by James Semple.
0: Help us root out perfidious moles by hitting the donate button at KenRobinTalkAboutStuff.com.
1: Join such illustrious patrons as Edward Hirsch, Darren Demez, and Samuel Kreider. Build
0: awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or power over life and death. By advertising with us.
1: Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.